MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds and national security secrets are being leaked in video game chat rooms. We have an intriguing show today. The Washington Post, Caroline Kitchener talks to us about the horrifying reality of post-Roe America. Then we'll talk to Yale Law Professor Scott Shapiro about all of the legal fuckery with the Supreme Court. But first, Showtime's The Circus's Mark McKinnon. Welcome to Fast Politics, Mark. Well, glad to be on the desk card. Thank you for having me. <laughs> We're delighted to have you. I feel like this week was, I mean, I don't understand. Will Republicans ever get sick of losing? <laughs> uh, not, apparently not. They just clawing their way to the bottom. <laughs> not sure we've reached it yet. You have spent your whole life, or not your whole life, but some of your life working in Republican politics. Did you watch what happened in Tennessee with the two Justins removed for several days in abject horror? I mean, did you see how this would just completely bite them? Of course. And it's funny, Molly, because this is in the category of great minds thinking alike. In the middle of all that, I said, oh, man, I'm going to write a column about how the Republicans are, now that they've caught the car, the car is running over them (laughs) between guns and Tennessee and Kentucky and abortion and Trump. And I pitched that to our favorite friend, <laughs> David friend. And he said, well, sorry, buddy. Molly, you just wrote that. <laughs> so, I mean, it's shocking to me to watch the arc of the Republican Party since the days of compassionate conservatism and how it has gone from the Tea Party to MAGA to, to something that I don't recognize at all. And to your point, ultimately, everything that's being done, it's just appealing to a smaller and smaller and smaller base of a diminishing demographic. So whatever short-term games they're getting, which aren't a lot, it's a long-term disaster for the Republicans. So I was thinking about this because I had coffee with a guy called John DeLaVolpe. I think yeah, I'm getting I his know, name John wrong. Does all the polling on, uh, on, on 
millennials. Right, exactly. He does all this polling on millennials. And you'll be surprised to hear that millennials are not that interested in Donald Trump's belief that the election was stolen from him. And in fact, they are quite interested in climate and other real things. And I want to talk to you because you were involved in Republican politics around the time when Republicans still offered voters something. And I wondered if you were in charge now, if you had to sort of do a postmortem on these smoking embers that will be the Republican Party when Trump is done with it, what would you offer? Well, you almost have to start from scratch. I mean, there was a postmortem done in 2012, which sort of laid out a battle plan for Republicans to grow the party. And that means addition. That means adding voters, not subtracting voters. And that means appealing to the Della Volpe voters, to a whole cross-section of voters who are growing, not diminishing as the sort of MAGA voters are, which is a highly white and old demographic. So, yeah, I mean, across the board, you just look at, first of all, I was drawn to the Republican Party and George Bush because of the appeal of the idea of compassionate conservatism. There's nothing compassionate left. So, I mean, much less is driving away Republicans like me, much less not attracting independents or even some conservative Democrats like George W. Bush did or others. So it's just in a death spiral. And you know, the worst thing that can happen to the Republican Party is Donald Trump. And I mean, think about this. He's, first of all, a twice impeached, and he lost the 2020 election, not just the presidency. He lost the presidency, he lost the House, he lost the Senate. That hasn't happened in a hundred years. Grover Cleveland was the last person to manage that. And now he's at once indicted, but it's very possible that by this time next year, I'd say even probable that he'll be running as a four-time indicted, twice impeached, and once lost the House, the Senate, and the presidency. That's a heck of a load to try and carry across the finish line. And it's a dream scenario for Democrats because I like Biden and I think he was the right guy for the right moment. I don't like him running for re-election. But Donald Trump may be the only guy that that Biden could be. So I just want to ask you, I mean, again, not to get into the nuances of the campaigns yet, and especially not on the Democratic side, because while Trump is running, I agree, while Trump is running, the only game in town is Trump. I wondered, I had read something about this idea that the more attention Trump gets, the worse he does in the sort of general population. And I think that's how the Biden administration is playing it, too. Sure. I mean, it's the old maxim that we used to say, don't catch a falling knife, let it fall. Let him catch it. It's his knife. And yes, there's no appeal to a guy who's being indicted to, that's not going to expand his voters. I mean, he was short 11 million. Right according to everybody but him. And if you're short 11 million in 2020, you got to have 11 million plus in 2024. And all that's happening right now is not going to appeal to one single voter of those 11 million, I assure you. But here's my question. Why can't Republicans explain to us the machinations here? Like, why is there no one? I mean, is it just because they didn't get a blowout in these last elections that they've decided to continue down this road of Trumpism? Or do you think it's because the base really controls the party? Or do you think it's some third option? The base controls the party. I mean, 30% is not a majority, but it's a lot of voters. And that's enough voters to control the primaries. And every time that somebody stands up and takes a shot at Donald Trump, they face the wrath of the MAGA faithful. And that's, like I said, 25 to 30% of that Republican base and that's enough. That's enough to cause a lot of pain. And that's why you see everybody just laying down. And they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. But I, I've said for a long time that the only option for a resilient or any future at all in terms of winning the presidency and majorities in this country for Republicans is to take Donald Trump off the windshield and put him in the rearview mirror. And until then, they're going to get that 30% of the MAGA voters or control those primaries. And as I've watched this, what happens is it's just sort of, for lack of a better term, or maybe it is the right term, it's just dumbing down everything completely so that in these primaries, increasingly you have these sort of purity tests. You have to say the election was stolen. You have to agree with all this Trump stuff, which just takes you out of consideration for general election voters. And it's just getting worse and worse. But the appeal is not going up. It's going down. 
And so if you're somebody running in a Republican primary, I mean, Arizona is a good example. This sheriff now is going to run in the Republican primary for the Senate. And he's going to out Carrie Lake, Carrie Lake. Right. And by the way, Carrie Lake is my favorite example, because for anybody who watched that election last cycle, she had all the candidate skills that you would want as someone who does campaigns or works with candidates. She's just a great communicator, fast, smart, and should have won that election going away. And yet she goes into a room full of potential voters, Republicans, and she says something along the lines of, who here supported John McCain? And a bunch of people raised their hands. She said, get out. <laughs> and it's like, are you kidding me? You're telling John McCain voters to go to hell? Well, guess what? They're going to tell you to go to hell and you are not going to be in the United States Senate. So that's the kind of thing. And so she's going to have to out-sheriff the sheriff now. And it just keeps spiraling downward and downward. But that's what DeSantis is trying to do with Trump right now. Yeah, he is. And he was supposed to be the golden boy. And he hasn't had a lot of luck the last month or so. And it's a good example of what happens when you take him on. I mean, he did so lightly. Right. I think Chris Christie's the only guy that's really taken a two by four to him, but Christie's not even in the race yet. I mean, I just am curious, though, do you think that running to the right of Donald Trump on policy would be hard pressed to even name a Trump policy makes any sense? No, you're not going to get to the right of Trump. That's just not going to work. And I think the only way to do it is just do what Christie's doing and just go ahead and take the two by four to Trump with the expectation, which I think is a realistic one and a practical one and a probable one, that one indictment, rough, two, brutal, three, wow, four, unsurvivable. At some point, that's just going to be too much and it's going to break his back at some point. It's like the, and if you ever read the book or saw the movie, The Man Who Would Be King, but I mean, the sort of whole notion of it is as soon as they see it bleed, you're screwed. And as soon as people, even the MAGA base, see that Donald Trump is mortal and he bleeds, they could evaporate overnight. So this is a very interesting thing that I have never heard anyone say. And so I want you to say more about this. Well, I just don't think that you're going to outflank Trump on the right. That's just not going to work. Right. And so, listen, everybody's afraid of making the MAGA faithful mad. Well, the thing that people respond to, the thing that Trump responds to is strength. Right. So go up and just get a rock and be David and <laughs> throw it. And you're going to get a lot of heat immediately from the base. But over time, you'll be seen as the guy who was willing to take on the king. And as I said, at a certain point over time, and it's going to take time, but when you get saddled with the second, the third, and the fourth indictment, and you're the guy that's been slugging him, and suddenly he buckles, you're going to be the guy standing in the ring. So here's my question for you with this. Do you think there's a moment where the MAGA base says this is enough? I just have so much trouble imagining that one day they're like, because I mean, if you think about it, what happened last Tuesday in New York was they decided that Alvin Bragg was a racist, which, right, of course, is the thing they love to say, and that Trump was a victim, and then they gave him a lot of money. Yep. Yep. That's the playbook. But I think that what they can't and won't accept, again, over time, is the notion that Donald Trump would be a loser. I mean, there's nothing more contrary to his brand than being a loser. And if, again, it's hard to project that far out, but when you think of a guy running with three or four indictments over his head, at a certain point, I mean, the polling is already not good for Trump and it's just going to get worse. It's not going to take all of them to leave, but if enough of them look around and say, well, Jesus, I love this guy, Trump, but he's not going to beat Joe Biden. We got to get somebody else. We got to get another horse. And who do they go to then? Well, I mean, I would prefer somebody like Glenn Youngkin. I think Youngkin is the kind of candidate. He's got a kind of a Reagan, sunny, optimistic approach and sensibility. That's the kind of guy I'd like to see running. I mean, t oh, Tim Scott, I think, is in a lane that I like. And Nikki Haley, to a degree. Uh, so I think <laughs> Once you get to Nikki Haley, you really sound exhausted. I'm trying not to be too mean here because I know I feel like the Republican Party dug itself into this ditch. But I mean, they are in this irretractable death ray. They are. But it's, again, the prospect of losing may be the tonic. 
And nothing happens in politics till it does. Right. And Tim Scott is another guy who may disagree with his policies, but he's a very sunny guy. It's hard to dislike. And I think he's got generally the right approach in terms of tone anyway, which is, you know, Not I think- Not fascism. But I don't know how you go as a Republican Party from the guy who called all Mexicans a rapist to the 11th black senator. Yeah. I, it's a stretch for sure. So my other question is like the thing that in some ways scares me the most about where this Republican Party is right now is that they seem to have embraced this Orbanism, right? This sort of Victor Orban democracy is a failed experiment. Let's go for this sort of populist fascist thing. And that a lot of the sort of younger thought leaders of the party they have a real dark vision for the country. And I mean, how worried does that make you? Well, again, I genuflected at the altar of John McCain, on, especially on foreign policy. So, I mean, it's just, I'm stunned by it. I can't believe it. And it's, it is dystopic too. I mean, it's anti-democratic, it's anti-American. And that's what strikes me as so profound about it all. It's just like, wait a minute, these are the guys waving the flag and they're over there supporting autocrats in Bolivia and hungry and around the world. And this is their new model. And they like to get it in debates now about saying, you know, the United States is not even democratic. No, I mean, we've crossed a scary Rubicon. This is why I wanted to like a sort of final question I wanted to drill down on. Like, and I've asked you this before socially, but like, say you were terrified of where this Republican Party was headed and you wanted to, I mean, how would, if there were people who were still in charge of the Republican Party, which it's clearly just Trump driving the show at this point, what would they do? How would they be able to push back against these autocratic urges? Well, I think that they would, and I think there's conversation certainly going on. I mean, people with any sort of common sense and humanity left in the Republican Party realize that Trump is unacceptable on any level. And that there has to be an alternative. And that's when you sort of have some rump movement among donors, whoever, to start lining up behind somebody. The real alternative approach, whether it's Yunkin or Tim Scott or whoever it might be, they just say, listen. I mean, the problem is that it's just party politics are so disintegrated now. There's nobody in charge of the Republican Party. There's nobody in charge of the Democratic Party. They're more in charge because they have the presidency. But it's not like there's a some committee like there used to be in the 50s or something will kind of control this and say, hey, blow the whistle. This guy's a big problem. But I do think you saw a lot of people lining up for DeSantis. And I don't count DeSantis out by any means at this point. I think he's had a rocky few weeks, but he didn't win Florida by double digits by being an idiot, at least strategically. So I think there's a good chance that he'll bounce back as well. So interesting, Mark. I hope you will come back. We'll kick it hard, carry on regardless. Keep the faith. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. 
old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances and the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Caroline Kitchener is a national political reporter covering abortion at The Washington Post. Welcome to Fast Politics, Caroline. Thank you so much for having me. So you have a really interesting beat. Will you talk a little bit about what you cover? Uh, Where to start? I feel even just today, there's like three different big stories going on. So I cover abortion, which just means I get to focus on this issue fully. The stories that I most like to write are the ones that focus on how these bans and various restrictions impact the lives of people. So I spend a lot of time in states where abortion is restricted, trying to talk to people who are trying to get abortions or just have really direct experience with how these laws are playing out. So one of the pieces you most recently wrote is pretty fucking heartbreaking. I can say that because we're not on cable news. It is this story of Anya Cook in Myanmar, Florida. Will you tell us a little bit about this story? Because these stories, again, are like the unintended consequences of these abortion bans, or at least we thought they were the unintended consequences. Yeah. The story... It was absolutely heartbreaking. So it's actually the story of two women, Anya Cook and her friend, Shanae Smith Cunningham, very close friends. They were going through their pregnancies together three weeks apart. And Anya first, her water breaks at 16 weeks, which is long before a fetus is viable. Right. Seven weeks before viability, before even the chance of viability. Even the chance. Exactly. So immediately realizes that this baby is not going to make it. And I should say, this is the baby that she desperately wants. I mean, this is somebody who's had a lot of miscarriages, who just wants to be a mom more than anything in the world. These are both women in their 30s. Yes, in their 30s, both Black women in the Fort Lauderdale area. And so Anya rushes to the hospital with her husband and the doctor explains that she's experiencing a condition called PPROM. That's a pre-viable preterm rupture of the membranes, mouthful. Basically, it means that your water breaks a long time before the fetus is viable. But he says that she has to go home. He can't help her because Florida has a 15-week abortion law in place. So typically, 
in a situation like this, a doctor would offer to induce or perform an abortion on the pregnancy. But because of the law, they can't. They can make this situation much less horrible by removing the fetus. Right. And that is often what they do because these situations come with a high risk of infection, a high risk of hemorrhage. So the standard of care, according to the American College of Opticians and Gynecologists, the standard of care is to offer that injection or abortion. But the doctor explains that he can't do that. And Anya is just devastated. She's And she's terrified. Right. She's sent home to possibly get an infection or bleed to death. Right. They give her some antibiotics and the nurse offers to pray for her. <laughs> oh, very helpful. And she goes home. Jesus. How does it end for these women? Well, Anya has an ex- just unthinkably traumatizing experience. The next morning, she tries to go about her life as normal. She goes to get her hair done and she delivers the fetus in the bathroom of the hair salon and she starts severely hemorrhaging and she's rushed to the hospital and over the course of the day she loses half of the blood in her body and she almost dies Jesus. but i think one thing that really stuck out to me about the story is that it's it's not just one woman that this happened right. to it happened to these two friends within a day one day later her friend shanae her water also breaks at 19 weeks and She also, in the state of Florida, cannot get the care that she needs. She can't get an induction and she can't get a DNC. But what's different about Sinead's situation is that because she knows what happened to her friend, she keeps going back to the hospital. She goes back and back and back. She's like, I can't deliver at home. I can't have this happen to me. And so finally, on her fourth trip to the hospital, she is dilated enough that they keep her and she's able to deliver and she doesn't have any terrible right but she still has the trauma trauma for sure right of delivering a dead baby or a dead fetus this story is so incredibly common it's like almost i feel like it's shockingly common i want to know aren't these anti-choice Republicans a little bit, I mean, don't they give a shit at all about these women? I mean, these are their wives, their children. I interviewed the sponsor of the 15-week abortion ban that's in effect right now in Florida for this story. And I I told her the story and I asked her what she made of it and how kind of what the law is supposed to do in these circumstances, because there is a medical exception, but it's very narrow. It's for save the life of the mother. And in these situations, when you present with your water breaking, it's not like you are like... But there's no choices. Yeah, but the medical exception doesn't... Like, it's not clear that that medical exception kicks in. But she is saying, when I interviewed this woman, she's saying, oh, it should count. That situation should count. But... She actually accused the doctors of sort of playing politics with people's lives, which is obviously a very serious accusation. And I spoke with many doctors in Florida for the story who said, we fear that we will be fined or go to jail if we do this. So if that is the reality, if the sponsor really is saying that they should be allowed, then they need to change the law and they need to like be explicit about the circumstances in which this is allowed. I mean, that is so striking to me. I feel like we, I mean, that is the thing that's so shocking to me that we are in a situation where there are all these unintended consequences. But again, this is what happened in the 1970s. I mean, there was the doctors who drove the road decision more than, I mean, there was a sense in which this situation was untenable for the medical profession. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the doctors, I spoke with over a dozen doctors for this story, and they all were just like, they're devastated because they want to provide this care for their patients, right? Like they, this is their job. Yeah, they desperately want to be able to take care of people like Anya and Shanae. And so when they can't, when they have to say, I'm sorry, you have to go home or I have to send you to another state. It's like, it is such a difficult thing to grapple with as a doctor. And and I have had people when I was reporting this story, I had people say to me, why don't they just do it? 
And that's not fair either because these are people. But they with can families. lose their license. Yeah. I mean, right. I mean, they can go to jail. Yeah. And so it's not fair to put that on them. It's also the hospitals, too, right? The hospitals are another layer of this. Right. So talk to me about the hospitals, because that's something that's really interesting is we're seeing the hospitals refusing to treat. Right. Right. But I mean, the hospitals, I think, are also kind of caught in a confusing bind. Like what we found in public records requests is that the language of the hospital policy pretty much directly reflects the language of the law, which is confusing. Like the medical exception it's really not clear, like, what is covered and what is not covered. So what we found is that they're sort of putting it on the doctors to decide and kind of take it into their own hands because the hospitals are also afraid of being liable for this stuff. So let's talk. So let me ask you about what you're seeing at the state level now with abortion bills. Because we have Florida. Florida's the big one. So talk to me about Florida. Florida has been the place that has not been as insane about abortion, but that's about to change. Yeah. I mean, currently they allow abortions to take 15 weeks of pregnancy, which does allow the vast majority of abortions to continue. But either today or tomorrow, the Republican legislature will pass a six-week abortion ban. And it is impossible to overstate the impact that that's going to have across the entire country because Florida performs more abortions than almost any other state in the country. It's a huge, huge state. And you ban abortion at six weeks, which is before most people know they're pregnant, then people are going to be pushed out of that huge state. And the places where they would go, North Carolina, South Carolina, Illinois, they're already so overwhelmed with everybody else from the Southeast that's been going there. And a lot of people from the Southeast, other states, have also been going to Florida. So it's just the ripple effects of that ban are going to be unbelievable. Yeah. No, I mean, it's just incredible. So talk to me about how that goes down now. That's a state bill. It's going to go to the governor. I mean, do you think, like... This race to create more and more restrictive abortion bans, what is driving it? I think the base. I do have to say it was somewhat surprising to me that Florida went this far. I thought we just have seen again and again and again that voters really care about protecting abortion rights. We saw it like just was it last week or the week before in Wisconsin. It's so clear. And I really thought that that would be on the minds of legislators in a place like Florida, but it doesn't seem to be. So I I do think it's a matter of the base probably for DeSantis, right? Like he wants to run for president, he needs to win a primary. But it's I think the big test is going to be 2024. So abortion has done really, really well on these ballot initiatives. And I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about the ballot initiatives you've seen and how they've performed and what you can extrapolate from that. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest one for me on election night, the biggest surprise to me was Kentucky. Yeah. Kentucky, just voters in Kentucky, conservative Kentucky came out to support abortion rights. And I think that that really shocked a lot of people and together with Michigan, too. I mean, Michigan was able to protect abortion rights, especially protect them. But Kentucky, basically, it was sort of the opposite thing that people were coming out to say there was an amendment to say that there were no explicit protections for abortion in the state constitution. And people were coming out to say, no, we don't want that. We don't want that amendment. So now what you see are just like abortion rights advocates are just scrambling to do this in as many places as possible. They want to have these ballot initiatives in as many places as they can effectively do them. And I do think it's tough because you can't do them everywhere successfully, I think, at the same time because they're expensive. So right now we're seeing some of that play out and by the kind of thick of the summer, we'll know which states are going to do this for real next time around. So one of the things I want to ask you is abortion has this right has been taken away from women less than a year. Now we're trying to 
pro-choice lawmakers are trying to figure out how to protect women. I want to ask you, like, why has the Congress been able to codify same-sex marriage, but had such tough time with Roe? A great question. I mean, some people have really questioned, like, why was this not done in the Obama era when Dems had stronger control? I mean, now there's just not the votes for it. Right. But I think that for so long, we really assumed that this was never going to happen. Like, even after the leak, like people were saying that this was never going to happen. And I think that it was that really ran so deep that it was hard to get energy behind it. So denial. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what I think, too. But it's just so shocking to me. I mean, I don't know where we go from here. I mean, I do think that 2024 is going to be massive for abortion. I mean, if a Republican gets in the White House, anti-abortion Republican, which I think that that all of them so far have come out backing some kind of national restriction, what we have seen is really the power that the FDA has. I mean, some of these agencies, the administration actually has an incredible amount of power to particularly restrict the abortion pill and then potentially help shepherd through a national ban. So I think that abortion rights advocates are going to be working really hard to make it crystal clear that abortion really is on the ballot next time around. So crazy. I mean, just and the Fifth Circuit is known to be very conservative. Oh, yeah. Known as the most conservative in the country. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll come back. Thank you. I would love to. Scott Shapiro is a professor at Yale Law School. Welcome to Fast Politics, Scott Shapiro. Oh, thank you so much, Molly. Great to be here. Talking to you is great. It's like talking to every single one of my relatives. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's like talk, talking to my Auntie Esther. Yeah. That's always how I want to be seen in the world is the same as Auntie Esther. Is Auntie Esther 90? No, 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 no. She's the best person in the world. And it's, oh. a, it's a high compliment. Oh, she, good. You know, she pronounces everything like can stuff. Oh, yeah. New York accent thing is brutal. So, Scott Shapiro, I wanted to have you on to talk because for any number of reasons, but you're a fancy Yale law professor, but you also are involved in the Yale cybersecurity lab. So you have really a bunch of skills that are you're really an expert in all the stuff I want to talk about. But first, before we talk about anything, we have to talk about the crazy Texas judge, the Trump-appointed Texas judge who decided, a federal judge from Amarillo, Texas, who decided that the FDA approval process isn't good when they approve something he doesn't like. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, the way we got into this is that you DM'd me after I tweeted the originalist case against Tylenol. Right. I mean, really, this is... A shocking ruling out of Texas. The law is really, really not on the Texas judge's side. And in fact, it's hard to think of this as anything other than just like a brute power play to try to shut down safe and legal abortions in the United States. Yeah, that's what I wanted to talk to you about. Is there any legal precedent for something like this at all? Let me just say one of the biggest problems with the opinion and the ruling is that it runs afoul of something that's called the standing doctrine. And the standing doctrine says not anybody can bring a case in front of a federal court. You have to have what's called a case or controversy. You have to be personally affected by it. Right. So it would be one thing if women who had tried to terminate their pregnancies using medication abortion, got harmed in some way, that'd be one thing. Then you could say, yes, they've been personally affected, and so therefore they have standing. But the people who brought this suit, the plaintiffs, the one who brought the suit, are physicians. And they're not even the physicians of particular women that have taken this drug. They're worried about fallout from taking the drug. So they right. really don't have any, they're not personally affected. And under standing doctrine that's been around for decades, they would not be 
allowed to bring a suit, and yet they did, and it was um, it was just affirmed on, in the Fifth Circuit. Let's talk about that Fifth Circuit. So this judge was picked by the anti-abortion group that was bringing lawsuits. It was jurisdiction chopping. He was picked because in this jurisdiction, there's only one judge, and this judge has been a very vocal anti-choice activist since way before he was put on the bench. This case now went up to the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit is notoriously shitty. Can you explain why and how? And I know you won't use the word shitty, but since I'm not a lawyer, I can use uh, technical terms. Yeah, no, 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 sure. I'll try not to use any Latin. So the Fifth Circuit is a very conservative circuit. And lots of the rulings that come out of the Fifth Circuit are not rulings that people, they would describe themselves as progressive. They don't like those decisions. I think people even in the center recognize that the Fifth Circuit is really somewhat extreme in their conservative views. I would also just say that it's also true that the Ninth Circuit in California has historically been known for its very strong liberal views. So this is not something that was just invented by Republicans or or the Federal Society, but it is true that this strategy of stocking the federal judiciary with conservatives and in particular Trumpist judges has been going full tilt. I mean, it was one of the main reasons why a lot of conservatives supported Donald Trump, even though everything about him is kind of not very conservative, not very conservative, not very family values. So and we can talk about it. But I think that this has created a, an enormous political problem for the Republican Party because they created a monster. And, and now it's hard to see how they put it back in the box. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about the (laughs) I feel like the Federalist Society has gotten some bad publicity lately. You've written on this a lot. One of the interesting things about this ProPublica reporting about Clarence Thomas and his good friend Harlan Crow, if that isn't a a superhero villain name, I don't (laughs) know what is. His good friend Harlan Crow is that there is actually no ethics provision for the Supreme Court. The kind of the code of judicial ethics, I believe that's the name, that applies to the federal judiciary doesn't apply to the Supreme Court, though, as good law and order people, they do consult the rules, as they say. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, the, the thing is, I, I'm a law professor, I teach in a law school, and one of the things I tell students over and over again, and I don't, to everyone tells is that, you know, there's one thing to have a conflict of interest, you know, and that's that's bad. But the second thing is to, it's really important to avoid appearances of conflict of interest. And Clarence Thomas seems to get into these bad optics. He's like the king of bad optics. Yeah, he is. He really is. I, I call him Justice Hot Dog Guy. <laughs> oh, right. Because of the hot dog guy meme where he's like, how did we get here? Right, right. Exactly. Guy dressed up in a hot dog suit who through the hot dog car. Trying to get to the bottom of things. Yeah. Yeah, we got to get to the bottom. Who did this? And I think it's just completely laughable when Clarence Thomas says, oh, I think the leak of Dobbs has eroded the legitimacy of the Supreme Court as if that hasn't been what he's been doing for the last several decades. I think it's a huge embarrassment how he's been behaving, but he acts to me like he which technically he is untouchable. One of the things that Justice Roberts, and I don't want to give Justice Roberts too much credit, really I don't, but Justice Roberts has been very much a person who we've seen behind the scenes trying desperately to get these these Trumpy justices to slow their role, to not change everything right away, to keep focused on the legitimacy of the court, whatever that means. But he also has a wife who is a legal recruiter. I guess I want to be kind of careful, you know, so lots of times, you know, when you have professionals and they're, they're, they're couples and they are their own people. And so we, we should be kind of careful about not 
tarring one partner with what the other partner does, though I think in the case of uh, Justice Thomas, I think (laughs) there are really serious (laughs) problems with his partner and how he's behaved vis-a-vis. Right. But, you know, in terms of Justice Roberts, you know, like we, you know, our, our partners have lives too, and they have lives before Justice Roberts, in this case, you know, was elevated not only to Supreme Court, but to the to be Chief Justice. So I, I would be just kind of careful about not trying to over-criticize the conservative majority. I think there's plenty, plenty. Right. But I'm just saying it speaks to the idea of why Justice Roberts might not want to go down this road. Oh, oh I see. I see what you're saying. I also just say, I also just think that, you know, it's called the Roberts Court. And, you know, his legacy is tied up with how some of these really reckless people, his colleagues are behaving. Right. And I think it pains him because I think he's, you know, a conservative small C who wants, you know, he's he's got conservative views, but I think he also wants to maintain the legitimacy. Legitimacy of the court, which at this point, I think that ship has sailed. So I want to ask you, so we have this abortion ruling. One of the many problems here is that we have also other rulings that are about mythoprostone, which are contrary in other circuits. Can you talk about that? Yeah, out of Washington state, like within hours, um, I forgot which one came first, but one had come out saying that uh, I think it was in 17 states that the Democrat uh, that um, Democratic attorneys general were 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 trying to keep access to abortion medications. And so now we have a situation where we have dueling injunctions, Washington state saying that at least in 17 states that the access to medication has to be provided and the Texas saying that in all 50 states, it can't be. Um, And so this is not great. And so this is why we have circuit courts, that is appellate courts, that try to resolve some of these disagreements. Although the Fifth Circuit, which includes Texas, does not include Washington state here. So Ultimately, if we want to get this resolved, it'll probably go up to the Supreme Court. So let me ask you about this. It seems like that you have all these different judges with different ideas on how this should go. The Supreme Court's about to go on vacation. They take their summers very seriously. (laughs) As somebody who also takes the summer seriously. I don't want to be I don't want to be too critical because I am, you know, I, we, we, we do get the summers off, not summers off. We don't teach during the summers as academics. But yes, yeah, Supreme Court's been moving really, I, 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 they, historically they've moved slowly, but they've been moving particularly slowly this year and last year too. Probably some of it's COVID, probably some of it was distrust about the leak is slowing things down. Maybe there's political tensions, institutional tensions there. I don't know. But like, right, what's gonna happen? It's hard to it's hard it's hard to know when they'll get around to ruling and then what they'll rule. It's so hard to say. They could do it on the shadow docket like they did with SB eight, the Texas abortion law that that basically overturned Roe a year before Roe was overturned. Yeah, I basically I, they could do that, which is basically not schedule oral arguments and have hearings and then write an opinion, but basically just vote on what they wanted to do and then just deal with it that way. The Supreme Court has become really quite even more unpredictable, I think, in certain ways, institutionally. And also just like, who knows how they're going to rule in this case. So that's what I wanted to ask you about the Supreme Court, because West Virginia had a trans kids sports ban, which they kicked up to the court and the court refused to hear it on the docket. But they did. The dissenters were Thomas and Alito. Let me say the following thing to give listeners a sense of what's at stake here. So on the one hand, you know, obviously access to safe and effective abortion medication is something that one side wants a lot and the other side does not want. But there's also a thing going on, which is the standing doctrine. So the standing doctrine, as I as I as I mentioned earlier, is about like when are you allowed to actually bring a lawsuit? And the standing doctrine 
was made more and more severe, meaning harder and harder for plaintiffs to bring lawsuits in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, because it was a way of stopping progressives from bringing lawsuits against, let's say, the Reagan administration or environmental uh, activists would bring these lawsuits to try to, you know, stop some agency action that would affect the environment. And the conservative justices and judges really whittled down when you were allowed to bring lawsuits. So if the Supreme Court were to say, yes, we're going to change standing doctrine. So now um, people who are really directly affected by a law could still challenge it. Then that opens up the floodgates to all progressive activists who want to challenge the things that they want to challenge. So this, this the standing doctrine was a creation in the last several decades of the conservative uh, movement. And so now they're being a bit hoisted by their own petard. This is super interesting. Thank you so much. I hope you will come back. I would love to. And um, I will tell Auntie Esther to listen. And now your moment of fuckery. Molly Drunk Fast. Jesse Cannon. You know what was the best? When all these people who've been bought things by Harlan Crow were saying, no, there's nothing wrong with Clarence Thomas taking vacation. And then another shoe drops to make them look stupid. No, the I'm going to go back here and say they were saying that there's nothing wrong with having Nazi artifacts. And in fact, there was an article <laughs> titled okay, having Nazi artifacts does not make you a Nazi. <laughs> you horrible Internet people forever saying such bad things about our favorite donor. Again, I ask you, all right, let's just stop and do a thought experiment. Uh huh. Uh-huh. If a Democratic donor had the standing bull death mask and cocktail napkins, personally, I would just not simp for the guy with Hitler's cocktail napkins. <laughs> but that is a choice that all of us need to make. Anyway, today we learn Harlan Crow bought justice. Clarence Thomas's houses, numerous houses that maybe Clarence Thomas couldn't sell or maybe we don't even know. It looks like fuckery to me. And for that, that is our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. 
And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.